Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. San Francisco, I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. Confirmation hearings for President Biden's nominee to the Supreme Court, Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson, are now underway. Today, members of the Senate Judiciary Committee are making opening statements, and Judge Jackson will deliver remarks. If confirmed, she'd be the first African-American woman and first former public defender to sit on the high court, reflecting a historic nomination that President Pro Tem Senator Patrick Leahy this morning called, quote, a reflection of the arc of our democracy. We'll talk about how the proceedings may unfold over the next three days and hear your reactions. This is Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos and Fermina Kim. You, Judge Jackson, are one of Mr. Lincoln's living witnesses of an America that is unafraid of challenge, willing to risk change, confident of the basic goodness of our citizens. And you're a living witness to the fact that in America, all is possible. That was Senate Judiciary Committee Chair Dick Durbin kicking off Judge Ketanji Brown's Supreme Court confirmation hearings this morning. The first black woman to be nominated to the high court, Judge Jackson is expected to face questions in the coming days about her judicial philosophy and her views on issues facing the court, including abortion, voting rights and affirmative action. Republican committee members, while promising civility, said this morning they will probe her record as a public defender and her position on the Supreme Court expansion. We're going to look at what's ahead with Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at the UC Irvine School of Law. She's also the re- uh, author of the recent book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Professor Goodwin, uh, welcome to the show. Thanks again for being here. It's a pleasure to be with you. And Mark Joseph Stern is senior writer covering courts and the law at Slate. Mark, we really appreciate you being here as well. 
Thanks so much for having me on. So, Mark, I'd love to start with you. Um, This morning, we're hearing opening statements from senators. And then, of course, the judge herself will get an opportunity uh, to address the committee. Can you tell us just what you've seen so far? Any surprises, anything uh, out of the ordinary? Well, it's been interesting to watch Democrats especially um, try to really uh, sort of pave a smooth path for the nominee over the coming days by avoiding areas of potential controversy. You know, Democrats have been very angry about the Supreme Court's recent direction, about Donald Trump's ability to put uh, 234 judges uh, on the bench in the federal courts. But you won't hear much of that from them during these hearings because they have decided to make this only about Judge Jackson, only about her qualifications, and to avoid discussing this broader issue of the court's uh, increasing lurch to the right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Meanwhile, we hear Republicans really um, sounding quite aggrieved and angry uh, about Democrats attempting and failing um, to tank the nominations of Neil Gorsuch, Brett Kavanaugh, and Amy Coney Barrett. Of course, all three of those justices serve on the bench today, but Republicans (laughs) keep talking about how poor they were allegedly treated by Democrats. Um, And so it seems that both sides have settled on their narratives and their strategies. And uh, we will see this play out in the coming days. But until the the nominee herself actually speaks up, this sounds more like a regular floor debate in the Senate than any especially exciting nomination hearing. Absolutely. Michelle Goodwin, your initial thoughts just from hearing, uh, I mean, what I heard of the opening statements felt very in line with what we expect, to Mark's point, from each party. That's right. But what's been disappointing is that we're far removed from the era of uh, bipartisan uh, hearings and confirmations of uh, judges at the lower court level and also for the Supreme Court. And what's really been so unfortunate is the way in which this has degraded um, the process of having a confirmation hearing. This actually could be a time in which the United States Uh, and its Senate uh, celebrates the fact that one more bastion of segregation falls. Mm -hmm. And one doesn't have to look deeply into history to see uh, the legacies of segregation, uh, including in law uh, and including on our court. I mean, I'll just remind our listeners that it was the Supreme Court itself that upheld an Illinois law barring women from even becoming attorneys uh, when a woman in the state of Illinois wanted to be able to practice law with her husband, had attended law school, and an Illinois law barred women from becoming attorneys. The case went before the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court said women were never meant to be in the practice of law, and they lacked reason and lacked the capacities that men do. And Michelle, remind us when that was. This was in the late 1800s. But what is interesting and important is that those legacies endure Mm -hmm. and they endure for decades. Um, And in fact, uh, we have, I mean, it's 2022. Uh, And it's been over 230 years. We've never had a black woman on the Supreme Court. So that even though that was, you know, 100 years ago, over 100 years ago, the reality is that, yes, even after 100 years ago, uh, we still have a long way to correct those legacies Um, on the Supreme Court today. um, We don't have parity. It's not half the women on the court are women at all. So so what would be uh, terrific to see would be a dignified process that doesn't lean into a kind of partisanship 
that is uh, that degrades the process altogether. And I think sadly that's some of what we've been seeing. The Republican National Committee uh, called uh, Judge Jackson a radical left-wing activist who would rubber stamp Biden's disastrous agenda. Uh, that's far removed from what we you know, saw and heard during the confirmation processes of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett, um, Justice uh, O'Connor, um, this kind of rhetoric and hyperbole. And you know, really, we should be above that and beyond it. Absolutely. I mean, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, talk about that and some of the attacks we've heard in recent days um, from folks, including Senator Josh Hawley, trying to sort of question uh, Judge Jackson's record around sex offender sentencing. Um, Do you see some of this as kind of dog whistle politics? Uh, Dog whistle is a mild term for it. (laughs) I, I mean, it's disgusting in my view. What we're hearing are these attacks that are evocative of QAnon, Pizzagate, these various conspiracy theories that emerged under Trump about um, Democrats being uh, child predators and being uh, sort of soft on uh, child predation and molestation. All of that nonsense is being repackaged uh, and served up as an attack on Judge Jackson, because as a district court judge, she did hand down some sentences that were on the lower uh, end of the range and the sentencing guidelines for people convicted of possessing child pornography, not producing child pornography but possessing child pornography. And what those criticisms leave out is that, first of all, in a majority of those cases, it was the prosecutors who requested a light sentence, not the judge. The judge did not come up with this herself. She did not say, I'm going to go way beneath what the prosecutors want. She went with what the government itself was asking for, which is standard practice. But more importantly, uh, all around the country, even as we speak, district court judges are handing down sentences for child pornography possession that are much, much lower than what the guidelines recommend, because it is agreed upon across political parties until quite recently uh, by judges on both the left and the right, by members of the Sentencing Commission from both parties, that these sentencing guidelines are outrageously draconian, that putting an 18-year-old in prison for decades for having a a pornographic photo of their 17-year-old girlfriend, that this is not worth a 20-year prison sentence. The fact that Judge Jackson was uh, within that mainstream view and the fact that she uh, adhered to uh, the mainstream belief that the sentencing guidelines are too harsh, that does not make her harsh on child predation. And it certainly doesn't make her part of a secret cabal to traffic in uh, children through Wayfair or whatever various I mean, QAnon conspiracy theories Josh Hawley is drawing on. Yeah. I mean, as you say it, it just sounds so absurd. But Professor Goodwin, I mean, this is not the first time I am sure, well, any black woman, but Judge Jackson has had to deal with these types of attacks. I mean, can you talk about that double standard and the difference between what you expect to potentially hear, say, some of these Republican senators questioning on her on compared to Amy Coney Barrett just a few years ago? Sure. Well, I'd actually like to speak to both because even the rhetoric uh, that is being produced now about a kind of soft on crime uh, being um, out of touch actually um, is fails to take into account the realities of what the last uh, 20 years have produced through social media. We're talking about cases of children who are 12 and 13 years old receiving images of kids who are 12 and 13 and 14 years old. And we're talking about uh, 
criminal punishments and also civil punishments as well um, that these children are facing, right? So one of the things that's missing from the conversation is that we've seen in the last 20, 25 years, children as young as 11 and 12 years old being um, prosecuted um, for receiving child pornography. Um, and it's within that context that if we want to have a national conversation about this, then we really should. Um, and so I, I think that's something that's really important to add to the conversation that we're not even just talking about 18 year olds. Right? We're talking about 14 right. and 15 year olds that are part of this conversation, um, which could implicate people from the very communities that these senators are coming from, claiming that she's uh, not tough enough on, on crime, because let's be clear, this is cross color barriers. And it crosses socioeconomic barriers. And we're talking about kids that come from middle class backgrounds and upper income backgrounds, too. Um, but this double standard that you've just asked about is something that's real. So we've seen the pivot away from talking about merit. Right? So the merit case has been made. She graduated from Harvard undergrad. Harvard uh, Law School was on the Harvard Law Review, uh, was a clerk on the district court level, appellate court level, and Supreme Court. She's also been a judge on the district court level and appellate court level and has experience that far exceeds uh, justices who currently sit on the court as a person preparing to come onto the court. So now the, the kind of dog whistling isn't about merit anymore. It's about uh, making these scurrilous claims that are really unfounded. And your question is, is this been something familiar for Black people, for Black women? And unfortunately, it is, right? There's sort of very rhetoric about her LSAT scores. Well, you know, we didn't see uh, Hawley and Ted Cruz and others asking about Amy Coney Barrett's LSAT scores. You didn't see this rhetoric about, you know, Justice Kavanaugh's LSAT scores or his grades in law school. Yeah. So, yes, it is a double standard. Uh, we are talking about the Supreme Court nominee, Kentaji Brown-Jackson, and her Senate confirmation hearings, which are beginning today. With us for the hour, Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law, and Mark Joseph Stern, Senior Writer, writer Covering Courts and the Law at Slate. What does Judge Jackson's nomination mean to you? What are your questions about her record or judicial philosophy or the confirmation process itself? You can give us a call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We are at KQED Forum. And you can email questions to forum at kqed.org. We're going to be here through the hour with both Mark and Professor Goodwin. Um, so... Let us know what questions you have for our experts. I'm Marisa Lagos, and for Mean and Kim, stick with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. 
Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in for Mina Kim, and we are talking about the Supreme Court nominee, uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson. Her Senate confirmation hearings are ongoing with Professor Goodwin and Mark Joseph Stern, a senior writer at Slate. Um, And I wanted to play for you guys something that California senior Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein said today during her opening statements. And you have done us proud. Each of the three times the Senate has considered your record your experience, and your ability, senators on both sides of the aisle have determined that you have the qualifications and the temperament it takes to uphold the values of our judicial branch. So, Mark Joseph Stern, I mean, you hear Senator Feinstein laying out the obvious, which is that this Senate has already confirmed her or similar Senates uh, three times, um, including just last year when we saw Senators Susan Collins of Maine, Lindsey Graham of South Carolina and Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, all Republicans uh, joining Democrats to back her nomination to the U.S. Court of Appeals. Um, and during our break, I saw uh, Josh Hawley was talking about the exact issue we, he had brought up earlier um, around this sort of ridiculous question of child pornography. And I just, I mean, I wonder if in a weird way, it's almost like an underhanded compliment that this is the only thing Republicans could come up with because she is so sort of well-equipped for this moment. They are certainly scraping the bottom of the barrel. And you can tell that it really took Republicans a while to settle on this particular line of attack because for the last month, nearly since this nomination was announced, um, there hasn't been a really uh, sort of cohesive and coherent Republican complaint against Judge Jackson. There have been a sort of scattershot gripes, but nothing that approaches what Hawley is, as we speak, uh, ranting about in the Senate Judiciary Committee about her alleged uh, sympathies for child pornographers, which, again, not true, a complete lie. Um, And so I do think that, you know, it's clear to most Republicans that she is going to be confirmed. The question is how much damage they can do along the way, and especially how much they can potentially damage Democrats, you know, with the midterms not too far around the corner, try to hang this around their necks like an albatross and make them seem soft on child predators as well. So it's all about some great political scheme and has very, very little to do, I think, with Katanji Brown-Jackson herself. Yeah. And Professor Goodwin, can you talk about that? I mean, this does seem to be, as Mark's saying, an attempt to kind of maybe dirty her up. But on the other hand, mm-hmm. you have so much excitement in so many corners to see the first you know, black female judge up there um, in this process to see what an amazing career and just personal story she's had. I mean, in a way that could kind of backfire, I would think. Well, one would hope so, but we're living at a time in which we've seen dramatic uh, divides in our country. Uh, We're not far off from the January 6th storming of the nation's capital. There are still prosecutions that are taking place. Uh, We saw something in our country a year ago that we didn't even see during the time of the nation's civil war, where 
five years after, almost five years after uh, the nationalist uprising in Charlottesville, which resulted in the death of Heather Heyer. And I mentioned that because it's not divorced from these particular times and the kind of race baiting that we see, the kind of dog whistling, um, the kind of driving down to the most prurient kind of core of our country, which is not something that we want to celebrate and has been something that we've sought to defeat since the time of the Civil War. But we see the vestiges of it uh, around us, right? We see it in Senator Ted Cruz having said that um, uh, Biden's commitment to nominating a Black woman for the Supreme Court was, according to him, offensive. And he said, quote, an insult to Black women. He said, Black women are, and I'm quoting here, he said, Black women are, what, 6% of the U.S. population? Um, and he says that President Biden, by saying he would nominate a Black woman, was saying, quote, I don't give a damn about you, presumably to white people in the United States. And so, you know, and I could go through a series of similar types of quotes that have come from members of the U.S. Senate. And as my colleague on with uh, us today has said, this really is scraping the bottom of the barrel. But what's so disheartening is that this is what's being heard, not only in our towns and cities in the United States, but it's also around the world. This is how poorly it reflects on our country that rather than being able to embrace the opportunity here and actually um, ask the kinds of questions that get at Judge Brown's uh, jurisprudence as best as they possibly can. Instead, we see that a lot of time being wasted on the most racist, sexist kind of rhetoric that is coming from members of the Senate um, or their political party. And that's really disheartening. And before I go to a call that I, I think uh, Mark will have a good answer to this caller, um, can you just drill down on why it's pretty ridiculous to claim that, you know, Biden's promise to nominate a black woman is somehow affirmative action or any different than what we saw for the last first couple hundred years, which is another kind of litmus test. I mean, there was no sure. consideration of non-white men for a very long time, correct? That's that's right. Baked into uh, social policy, legal policy. But let's be clear, dating back to President Richard Nixon, there were articulations about nominating a woman. So Richard Nixon articulated that it unfortunately didn't go far, not because of qualifications, but sadly because of sexism. Ronald Reagan said he would correct that and he would nominate a woman and he did, uh, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor, and she was confirmed uh, unanimously by the United States Senate. So this is not new whatsoever. It's just that this becomes an opportunity and a proxy for power grabs. And, you know, that's what we've seen. President Trump was able to nominate and get confirmed more federal judges than any other president, save George Washington. And so the very idea that this is affirmative action, this is court packing, all these various things really, I think, um, obscure the fact that these have been attempts at power grabs, which we've seen since um, the denial of Merrick Garland to even be able to get a hearing before the United States Senate. Right. All right. I want to bring in one of our callers, Sid from San Francisco's on the line. Sid, go ahead. Hi, uh, my name is Sid, and I have a question um, that um, uh, technically Democrats have the majority in the Senate, um, Kamala Harris being the president of the Senate, and they can literally push through whoever they want to. And um, Katanji Jackson 
brown. Um, she's she's more of a centrist. And um, why did they choose to do that? It's my question because when um, Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett were they were um, um, pushed through the Senate and Republicans had, had majority, they were not centrist at all with abortion rights and everything. So why do Democrats have to care so much right now? Thanks for the call, Mark Joseph Stern. What do you think? Um, I think that this question goes to an asymmetry between the parties um, on who they feel are fit to be nominated to the courts and who they feel can be confirmed. So for Republicans, there is a constant drive to uh, identify individuals as far to the right as possible to put on the court. And in fact, what we see uh, now with all of these Trump nominees in lower courts is that they are competing with each other to be more and more extreme, writing these opinions that read more like angry blog posts, um, trying to uh, essentially audition for the next Supreme Court vacancy under a Republican president. So that kind of behavior is rewarded on the right. On the left, Democrats almost always go with more centrist uh, mainstream picks, uh, in part because I think they have less confidence in their ability to uh, hold their caucus together and push through an individual, especially with the thinnest margin possible as they have now. And we don't see Democratic nominees on the lower courts jostling with each other to prove that they are the furthest left uh, possible person to be elevated to the next vacancy. Instead, we see people like Katanji Brown-Jackson really keeping their head down, avoiding big controversies where they can, just doing the work day in and day out. Um, and so this dynamic has led to a place where every time there's a Republican vacancy, we get an Amy Coney Barrett, a very, very far-right, harshly conservative judge. Meanwhile, when there's a Democratic vacancy, we get someone with roughly the same ideology as Stephen Breyer, who is a very much a centrist. Yes, he's on the left flank of the court, but by you know recent historical standards, he is not a particularly lefty justice. Um, and until Democrats decide that they need a different approach, we're going to keep seeing these left-leaning, uh, but but really mainstream and centrist nominees picked for both the Supreme Court and for lower court vacancies. But Professor Goodwin, I mean, is that surprising? We're already seeing some of the you know racist attacks or or maybe not overtly racist, um, but the subtext there. Oh, they are there. overt. <laughs> yeah, well, it depends on what we're talking about. But, like, I just wonder, I mean, wouldn't it be, like, like isn't it part of the, the sort of demographic considerations here that, like, a black woman is scary enough, but somebody who is maybe considered a little more centrist at least, I don't know, is not quite as threatening to the right? I mean, do you think that's well, part of the calculation? Certainly this has been consistent with the type of calculation, but let's also be clear, people who have prepared themselves for this particular moment also understand that in the United States, this is a nation that doesn't necessarily see itself as ready to combine uh, both race and sex and more progressive uh, politics within its institutions. And we've also seen the kind of battering that even women of color in Congress um, have had to withstand. Um, we've heard members of Congress um, reports of them being called uh, expletives uh, without apology. I mean, it's really degrading to these institutions, but this is the kind of result if you have progressive politics and you you know want to be in US uh, government, you have to be prepared for um, consistent um, unbased, unfounded attacks um, that pay no attention to what your actual record are that can be really derogatory. Um, but let's just say this as well. Um, 
this is going to be the first time if Justice Jackson is confirmed, and I believe that she will be, that there will be a public defender um, on the Supreme Court. That experience matters a great deal in our country, especially in a nation uh, where mass incarceration exceeds that of any other country. I mean, we're 5% of the global population, yet make up 25% of the people who happen to be incarcerated. The first 10 amendments of the U.S. Constitution are Bill of Rights. The majority of those amendments address people's ability to be free from the tyranny of the state when it comes to matters of criminal justice. This is critically important that we have this opportunity to actually have someone with her level of experience on the court that can actually relate to what uh, the Bill of Rights is all about. Yeah, absolutely. And we saw that, we've seen that in California too. Um, Former Governor Jerry Brown, I think, appointed more defense attorneys and public defenders than we'd ever seen. And it it, it does make a difference. Um, I want to play another cut from this morning's hearings. uh, North Car- or South Carolina Senator, excuse me, Lindsey Graham um, and other Republican senators, you know, were pushing back on this question that racism is at play in their criticisms. Um, and here is Senator Graham, who we should note again, did vote for uh, Judge Jackson in earlier confirmation hearings. So if you're Hispanic or African-American conservative, it's about your philosophy. Now it's going to be about the historic nature of the pick. Now it's going to be about your philosophy. The bottom line here is when it is about philosophy, when it's somebody of color on our side, it's about we're all racist if we ask hard questions. It's not going to fly with us. We're used to it by now. At least I am. (laughs) All right. And uh, uh, Mark Joseph Stern, any reaction to that? I mean, do you expect to see someone like Senator Graham vote against this nomination? I think I do. Um, And it's a bit surprising since, as you noted, less than a year ago, he voted for her nomination and confirmation to the D.C. Circuit. Um, But it seems like he has a lot of grievances, returning to a theme I I mentioned before, about the way that uh, Supreme Court nominees were handled under Trump and that he kind of feels like what, what goes around comes around, to use a line that actually Brett Kavanaugh deployed during his testimony, speaking explicitly about Democrats. Well, it is coming around again. Again, in Lindsey Graham's mind, this is a time when he can kind of punish Democrats for their alleged malfeasance during these previous confirmation hearings, uh, and clearly he is going to make use of it. So this is really not about Judge Jackson herself. Again, so many of these criticisms just aren't about her. This is an attempt to get back at Democrats for perceived slights and injustices of the past. Got it. All right. Well, we do want to talk about more than just politics. So I have some great listener comments, and I want to remind everybody out there, if you have any questions about uh, this uh, Judge Jackson's record, her judicial philosophy, or the confirmation process, um, or just you just want to tell us what this nomination means to you, this historic nomination, give us a call 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can also get in touch on Twitter and Facebook at KQED Forum or email us at forum at kqed.org. Uh, one listener wants to know, with abortion rights coming up on the docket, I'm glad to have a female appointee, but will she be able to make a difference on a 6 to 
to three conservative leaning court. And another listener with a similar question. I'm curious how justices can influence one another to change their points of view. Does that ever really happen in a divided court? I've heard that Neil Gorsuch is not well liked by other justices. How much does collegiality matter? Um, Mark, talk about this. Like, there are subtle ways, even if the outcome is the same, that justices can influence each other. And of course, there's always dissents and that sort of path, right? Absolutely. There is vote trading and log rolling behind the scenes at the Supreme Court, just as there is in every legislative chamber, um, (laughs) which is really kind of how the Supreme Court operates. Uh, There are blocks of the left and right. There are um, judges in the center, now really just Chief Justice John Roberts, and they all work with each other to try to maximize outcomes in the cases that they care about. So you will see um, some liberal justices try to make compromises with the conservatives to maybe give up some of what they care about in order to do damage control and and to reach a final decision that's not quite as bad for progressive values as it might be. But with a 6-3 court, there's obviously less room for that. Um, And I think that this would be a very different conversation if uh, Judge Jackson were replacing, say, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, a fourth liberal justice. Then it would be really crucial that she have the ability to work behind the scenes to uh, strike these compromises, to do a little bit of vote trading, to engage in the kind of, uh, 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 you know, negotiation negotiations that the justices must rely on to get to five votes in a lot of big cases. But with this three justice liberal block, I'm very skeptical that she will have a major impact. Her impact will be felt through dissents. Uh, Her impact will be felt through separate writings. But I I strongly doubt that she will be able to craft the kind of compromises that lead to a more moderate outcome in major cases. What about specifically on the question of abortion, Mark? We know that there is um, a case where, you know, a lot of legal observers expect Roe v. Wade to be gutted, if not overturned entirely. Will this other vote make any difference on the more liberal side of things? Well, no, just because she will not actually join the court until that case is decided. So remember, she's going to be confirmed if all goes well very soon, but she won't actually uh, go on to the bench until Justice Breyer steps down, which he plans to do at the end of this term, probably in late June or early July. So she will not have any impact on the decision pending before the court. If there are further abortion cases after that, then yes, she might have an opportunity um, to try to find some kind of middle ground. But if the court overturns Roe in June, there won't be anything she can do once she does join. And what about, just sticking with you, we only have about a minute and a half before break, but uh, affirmative action, actually. Um, there's a case challenging those policies at Harvard and University of North Carolina. She is expected to be sat before that case, correct? Would that what? potentially... I mean- So actually, it's tricky because she sits on a board at Harvard Mm. um, and thus may be conflicted out of that case. So she may only be able to sit on the UNC case. Now, the questions are very similar, obviously, in both cases. So she might still have some influence over the outcome. But this is an area where all six conservatives in the majority are on the same page. There's no apparent disagreement between, say, John Roberts and Neil Gorsuch and and, and Brett Kavanaugh. They all hate affirmative action and they're all prepared to end it. Got it. All right. We are continuing to talk about Katanji Brown-Jackson. Judge Jackson has been uh, nominated by President Biden to the Supreme Court, and her confirmation hearings are ongoing this week. With us for the hour, Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine, or UC School of Law, excuse me, Um, and Mark Joseph Stern from Slate. He's a senior writer covering the courts and the law. You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. Tell us what you think about her nomination, and if you have any questions questions for the panel. We'll be right back. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim, and we are talking about Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson's nomination to the Supreme Court and the ongoing hearings. And Professor Goodwin, we have a question for you. Doug wants to know, can your guest please comment on how much political work Virginia Thomas, also known as Ginny Thomas, does in the context of Republicans chastising Ketanji Jackson as a political appointment? And of course, uh, Ginny Thomas is the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. What are your thoughts well, on that? I don't, so I don't have the privilege of knowing the depths of Jenny Thompson, Thomas's uh, involvement on such matters, but there have been investigative reports on the New York Times and the New Yorker that reveal a deeply alarming pattern of involvement in uh, matters ranging from the January 6th insurrection uh, to a level of influence, perhaps, on the Supreme Court um, that I think many people would find deeply alarming and without the kinds of structures in place that would put guardrails around that, right? So the very thin ethical rules for Supreme Court justice to follow, um, unlike justice judges on or justices in state courts or lower level federal court uh, uh courts, the Supreme Court justices basically have to police themselves. And so given that, there is deep concern then about the kind of influence that Jenny Thomas um, is potentially playing in our government. And Mark Joseph Stern of Slate, your thoughts on this? I mean, um, as Professor Goodwin outlined, there's been some pretty deep reporting, and it does seem very different than, you know, the standards we've seen, um, to her point, other public officials sort of held by when it comes to their spouses. There has never been a conflict of interest this great on the Supreme Court in the history of the nation. Uh, I certainly hope there never again will be. Um, Judy Thomas is a very active lobbyist. She lobbied Donald Trump in the White House uh, on issues that came directly before Clarence Thomas on the court. Um, she is very close friends and associates with various parties, individuals and organizations that appear before the court, that sign amicus briefs that go to the court. And she was at the Stop the Steal rally on January 6th that preceded the insurrection, but claimed she left early because she got too cold. Of course, the Supreme Court has already issued several orders pertaining to the investigation into that rally and its aftermath. This stuff is not supposed to happen in the United States. It is a grievous breach of all known ethical duties for Clarence Thomas to continue to decide these cases. But because there is simply no 
no enforcement mechanism to get him to recuse, nothing will be done. Uh, and so we are stuck in this position where one of nine votes seems very much compromised on this court. Mark, what about what we talked about earlier, which is that, that sort of behind the scenes pressure? I mean, John Roberts, the you know chief justice, has seemed very intent on as much as he can, you know, keeping the court above politics, obviously not always successfully. But is that something we might see or hear about? Or do you think that uh, Clarence Thomas is just sort of so well established that, that, that he wouldn't even go there? I wouldn't be surprised if the chief justice had had a side conversation with Clarence Thomas and said, you know, I, I, I really think you should consider recusing. But I'm sure that would be the extent of it, because uh, the chief justice certainly likes to present himself in the court as a very ethical institution. At the same time, he has um, resisted any kind of code of ethics passed through legislation that would apply to the Supreme Court. And he has raised doubts about the constitutionality of federal laws that would require the justices to recuse in certain cases. The reality is that neither he nor any of the other justices want a binding code of ethics. And so I think they are willing to overlook and tolerate transgressions by someone like Thomas, because they themselves don't want to have to answer to an independent ethics panel the way that lower court judges do. Interesting. And we should mention that uh, Justice Thomas was actually uh, admitted to the hospital on Friday evening after experiencing what they're saying are flu-like symptoms, um, but that he is expected to recover and will participate in any arguments uh, that are, or I guess not the arguments, but in any cases that are argued this week, they say he, he will catch up on. Um, okay, we're going to switch gears a tiny bit. We have a caller from Los Angeles. David, go ahead. Tell us what, what's on your mind. Yeah, sure. So uh, my name is David. I am an LGBTQ rights lawyer in Los Angeles. I went to both college and law school with Judge Jackson. I knew her then as Katanji Brown. Um, I clerked at the U.S. Supreme Court for Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, not at the same time that she clerked for Stephen Breyer. I'm a couple years older than her. But I want to tell you an interesting story. So first of all, I was her mentor on the Harvard Law Review. So I know Katanji well. And um, but one thing that is really interesting is that in college, she was a really talented singer and actress. And at Harvard College, they created an original show about the life of Billie Holiday, one of the greatest jazz singers in history, who also had a heroin issue and was unfairly prosecuted and treated terribly. And Katanji Brown, now she's Katanji Brown Jackson, but <laughs> Katanji Brown played Billie Holiday. And you can look it up on you know, various review sites, and she was stunning. Uh, and that's just a fun little fact about her. I love that. Uh, but, but, it, <laughs> but it's more than just a fun fact. The fact that she played an African-American woman who was being unfairly prosecuted – I think plays into why she's a great choice for this court. Awesome. Well, David, thank you for that memory. It's really nice to hear a personal anecdote. Uh, we appreciate it. Um, uh, I'm going to move on to some listener comments as well. Um, Robert wants to say that every time he says, please, every time Lindsey Graham utters a word claiming concern for treatment of Supreme Court nominees, we must recall him lying in his reasoning, justifying why Merrick Garland was denied a hearing and violating those same stated justifications in order to ram through Amy Coney Barrett. This is relevant today. Um, and we have a question from a listener. Have justices on the Supreme Court come mostly from an academic background or a background of people who practice law like public defenders? 
shooters. Reading the bios of the justices, it seems like a lot of them don't have practical experience of being lawyers in the courtroom. Is that right? Uh, Professor Goodwin, your thoughts on that? So it's a bit of a mix. Um, there are no specific, there, there isn't a kind of uh, job description, if you will, for serving on the Supreme Court. When Justice Thurgood Marshall came onto the court, he had argued dozens of uh, cases before the court, far more than anybody who at that point had been sitting uh, on the court. And today, um, there has been a trend of individuals who've come to serve on the court who may not come from academia, some of them do, um, but who may have graduated from law school but never spent any time actually litigating before a court, but instead doing transactional work at a law firm or something like that. So that, you know, there is a real concern about the kind of demographic um, and also employment uh, diversity on the court. This is actually an opportunity for us to have a more robust conversation about that. That's even beyond uh, Justice Judge Jackson's uh, race and sex, but just in terms of what are the other factors of diversity that are really important for the court. We have a court that is not representative of various law schools, that's not representative of the geography of the country, and so much more. And I'm glad we're able to have those conversations and to provide some relief for those concerns in a candidate such as Judge Jackson. Absolutely. Um, We have another clip from this morning's hearing um, from Senator Sheldon Whitehouse of Rhode Island, who has been um, outspoken in the past about the issues you're about to hear him talk about. The unpleasant fact is that the present court is the court that dark money built. Anonymous donations funded the Federalist Society while it housed the selection turnstile run by the dark money donors. Anonymous money funded the dark money group down the same hallway as the Federalist Society that ran the dark money political campaigns for the selected justices. And Mark Joseph Stern, talk. we talked about this a little bit earlier, but let's hit on this again. I mean, it does seem that conservatives have had a much more sort of uh, strategic approach to who they want to get on the court and how to, um, and, and not necessarily the same sort of organization from Democrats. That's been true for many, many years, and it's only starting to change now. And that's one reason why I think it's quite amusing to see Republicans uh, accuse Democrats of, of relying on dark money to try to get Judge Jackson confirmed. That's not entirely untrue. There are some, quote, dark money groups like Demand Justice that don't reveal all of their donors that are supporting Judge Jackson. But they are borrowing the playbook that Republicans have been running for years and years and years. It was Republicans who first really devised this strategy of relying on outside dark money groups funded often by just a few very rich people whose names are never revealed uh, to support their nominees and to oppose Democrats nominees. Democrats are playing catch up here in a big way. They are very far behind. And just as a broader issue, stepping back from the whole dark money question, Democratic voters did not care as much about the courts as Republican voters for quite some time. There's a, a fair amount of polling on this. It's a difficult question to poll, but what we just generally see is that Republicans more frequently vote for the president because of the Supreme Court than Democrats. Republicans are looking ahead to who this next president might appoint to the Supreme Court. Democrats just didn't think about that very much for a long time. The gap seems to be closing. uh, And I think that the end of Roe will probably flip the dynamic here, if anything. Um, But, you know, there's just a huge gap still between the two parties when it comes to strategizing smartly 
about how to get the courts in their corner. And did a lot of that strategy on the right focus around abortion and reproductive rights? I mean, it does, to your point, seem like it could be an issue that activates the left, um, depending on how far the court goes in a few months. So the the short answer is yes. The longer answer is that the scholarship on this suggests that the right-wing backlash really began after Brown versus Board of Education, but that there was a roughly 20-year period where uh, conservative politicians couldn't really figure out how to seize on this issue as a very effective way to get Republican voters to care more about the courts. Then we have party realignment in the 1960s, and we have Roe v. Wade in the early 1970s. And that is is kind of the aha moment among conservatives and Republicans where they realize this can be our organizing principle and we can use this not only to get our voters to care more about the courts, but to sort of d- decide the specific kind of judge we want for the court and say that any other kind of judge is fundamentally illegitimate. We want originalists and textualists and anyone else doesn't deserve to be there. And that has been a massively successful campaign over the last half century or so. And again, I don't really know what will happen if Roe falls, but it does seem like the dynamics could flip because suddenly Democrats are going to be the ones up in arms about Roe and the fall of abortion rights and Republicans might get a little complacent because they think they've won the war. Absolutely. You are listening to Forum. I am Marisa Lagos in Fermina Kim. And I want to bring in a caller, Chris from Santa Clara. Chris, go ahead. Great. Hey, um, thank you very much for taking the call. Um, quick question. Um, when we're, when you're, we're looking ahead to the next round of people who can become judges at all levels, it seems to me that since the Federalist Society has been so effective over many decades at trying to recruit and place people of conservative ideology, what's it going to take for liberal-leaning lawyers to actually want to become judges? It seems like we just don't have the level of passion among left-leaning attorneys, and I wanted to see what the panel has to say. Great question. Michelle Goodwin, what do you think? I think that the passion for being involved in the judiciary or in politics, two separate lanes, but they do overlap, um, can actually start in law school. Mm -hmm. And this is uh, one of the reasons why we need to think in more nuanced ways about where our judges will come from and seeing that as part of a national agenda and not just one of uh, elites on the East Coast. Um, And so I do think that processes like this can be discouraging on one hand. So for example, you could see people who might be of color saying, gee, one day I would like to be in the sort of seat of uh, Judge Jackson with the potential to serve on the court. But I see she's being hammered and beaten up for doing the kinds of things that are noble and important, such as serving as a criminal defense attorney. Would I want to put myself through that? I want to write on law review, but gee, one day might it ding me if I'm before uh, a committee that's going to be reviewing that. And this is where the role of law professors and deans is really important to continue to encourage law students that this is important. These career paths like this are important and to do the work in processes like this with trying to hold senators to account. Absolutely. Professor Goodwin, sticking you for a, with you for a second, we've talked about, you know, the Roe case. And I feel like in past uh, hearings, you know, abortion, trying to get it where a nominee was on some of these issues were kind of the strategy, especially the opposition party. 
Where do you expect to see some of the tough questions this week um, beyond maybe some of the issues we've already discussed today? So that's a great question. So we've already seen with some of the kind of tweeting that's taking place by some of the members of the Senate, they want to know what's uh, going to be her take on matters of imminent domain. Uh, they're going to want to know what's her, you know, take on the Second Amendment. Certainly, abortion rights will come up, uh, as will affirmative action. Now, I think that those are all going to be valid areas uh, to try to get at some sense of her jurisprudence. And I think we need to keep in mind two things. One happens to be is that if we look back at the confirmation hearing of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, it was in a time in which she could speak openly um, about her views on criminal justice, about abortion. Um, She did not um, flinch uh, when speaking about those issues. She mentioned that she actually would take her law clerks to visit jails in Washington, D.C., that is different than today. And she had very few dissenters against her her, uh, nomination. But we saw in the confirmation hearings of uh, Justice Alito and also Justice Roberts as kind of keeping things close to the vest, uh, not sharing much. And that's been a process that we've seen recently. So I just, you know, put that out there to just point out the balance that if we see her keeping things close to the vest, well, that's certainly what Republican nominated candidates have done in recent confirmation hearings. Absolutely. Mark Joseph Stern, just a few minutes left, but what are you watching for? Is there any, I don't know, maybe less expected topics, uh, legal questions that you think might be brought up given her record? Um, You know, she's only sat on the D.C. circuit for less than a year. She's only written a few opinions, not really blockbusters. And uh, during her time on the district court, um, a lot of her cases involved pretty arcane matters of administrative law, uh, stuff that most Americans don't seem to care too much about. But I care about deeply um, (laughs) because that is really how the government is run through federal agencies like the EPA, like the Department of Labor, like the Justice Department, like all of these hundreds of federal agencies that enforce and interpret the law on a daily basis, which the Supreme Court's conservative majority is very eager to hobble Mm -hmm. and to restrict and to prevent from addressing the current problems of the day without further congressional action. This is a huge issue that unfortunately, I think most non-lawyers haven't really wrapped their heads around yet. Uh, And I'm hoping that some senators do ask questions about it, if only so that more people who are watching at home can be educated about this issue and start to really think critically about what it means to be a judicial skeptic of the administrative state and what it means for an expert on this, like Katanji Brown Jackson, to be on the court and able to oversee and referee all of these really important decisions being made by executive branch officials on a daily basis. I think that's a great place to leave it. Sometimes uh, the most important stuff is a little bit in the weeds. Um, Thanks so much to my guest today, Michelle Goodwin, Chancellor's Professor and Director at the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy at UC Irvine School of Law. She's also author of the recent book, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Professor Goodwin, we always appreciate having you on Forum. Always appreciate being with you. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. And Mark Joseph Stern, senior writer covering the courts and the law at Slate. Mark, you're a rock star. Thank you, too. (laughs) Always a pleasure. Thanks so much. That is going to do it for this hour of forum. For the rest of the week, we are going to be hearing these uh, uh, nomination hearings in front of the Senate Judiciary Hearing. Here, uh, excuse me, Senate Judiciary Committee. I'm Marisa Lagos. I've been in for Mina Kim. She'll be back after the hearings. Thanks for listening. 
Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.